Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Conservative member of parliament and immigration critic Michelle Rempel had a lot to say about the federal government and irregular border crossers. The danger of permitting terrorists to associate freely in Western detention. And what do Canada's legal gun owners think of the political response to the murderous shooting rampage in Toronto on the Danforth? What do they think about politicians again saying, let's get rid of guns? She's 12 years of age. She's a Haitian earthquake orphan. She was adopted by a Canadian family, but she's not allowed into Canada. Her name is Whitleen Earl. Her father is Vaden Earl. Here's what they had to say. So let's get at this whole issue of our borders and what's going on with the border and Mr. Blair saying that 68% of Canadians are suffering from a misperception when it comes to the supposed irregular border entrance. I still don't know how we arrived at irregular suddenly becoming official terminology. Michelle Rempel is the Conservative Member of Parliament, immigration critic. She represents the riding of Nose Hill in Calgary. She's very generous with her time to us. Hi, Michelle. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time. And I should begin with this. John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, tweeted out that migrants arriving in his city are, in fact, refugees. So I tweeted a reply asking if that designation has been officially arrived at. I didn't hear anything back. That's right. Um, Because people who make an asylum claim or a refugee claim after they've illegally entered the country, many of these people won't have their claims validated or invalidated for several years because the system by which we undertake that review is so backlogged uh, because of how many people have illegally entered the country at Roxham Road. I just find it interesting that John Tory would, maybe it was just a slip of of the brain on a, on a Saturday morning, I don't know, but he, he tweeted that migrants arriving in his city are refugees. No, they're not. You're, you're well, not they're a, people with pending... They're people with pending asylum claims. That's right. And and the money that is spent on this whole process per refugee claimant is huge, is it not? It is, uh, especially given the delay that I just mentioned. So, you know, in an ideal world, you'd be turning around these decisions very quickly, like in a month sort of thing at the very latest. We know that this process is going to take years now, so that means somebody illegally crossing the border at Roxham Road makes their claim today, let's say, they're probably not going to have their claim heard for years. Uh, And in that period of time, this is where the hotel accommodations and social program cost issues uh, arise. So there's that component. There's the component, the actual processing cost itself. And then there, of course, is the, for, for many people who will not have valid asylum claims, the cost of removal. And, of course, people are entitled to uh, the lengthy appeals process in Canada, which also costs uh, the Canadian taxpayer a significant um, amount of money. So now we have Bill Blair, the new Minister of Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction, 
says 68% of Canadians don't understand the issue of border crossings, that there's a misperception, quote-unquote, about the numbers of irregular entrants and the circumstances under which these people are entering Canada. So, as I said earlier, it didn't take Mr. Blair long to accuse Canadians of not understanding what's going on. What is going on? What's going on? Yeah, that that really uh, struck me as well, listening to his his media yesterday, Roy, um, because there was a big poll that came out yesterday uh, that showed that, you know, a significant majority of Canadians really felt that Justin Trudeau was mishandling the border and the illegal border crossing crisis. And so, you know, as, as opposed to saying, hey, here's how we're going to fix this issue, the, the Trudeau government's response was to say, well, Canadians must be, you know, misinformed or wrong in their opinion. And that's such, such an elitist attitude. And the reality is, I mean, you didn't hear anybody talk about this yesterday. There have been over 30,000 people who have illegally crossed the border since hashtag welcome to Canada. Um, There are, you know, hundreds of people at at this very moment that are being bussed into uh, hotels in the greater Toronto area and being put up for we don't know how long uh, as a taxpayer expense. Uh, And the government has actually set up a permanent process to take people from the Roxham Road crossing in Quebec, because the government of Quebec has said that they don't want them. They're using a, um, a, a very colloquial term called triage uh, to try and basically make this sound more pleasant. But they're putting people on buses to Cornwall, where they then put them on another bus and take them to hotels and, like, you know, the Markham area and whatever to, 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 to house them for a long period of time. And that's what's happening. And I think a lot of Canadians as well as people who are trying to legally enter the country, are going, why would we be prioritizing people who are coming from safe spaces like upstate New York in our in our asylum claim process, mm-hmm. which was always de- designed for people facing extreme persecution? Well, I know that Roxham Road area very well, in, uh, close to Plattsburgh, New York, and it's a, it's a really lovely part of northeastern North America, part of the Adirondack chain. I mean, there's... There's nothing particularly uh, violent or disturbing about about that area, and the United States is a safe uh, refuge, designated safe country for refugees. So we come we we come full circle, and we we raise the point again: what's going on with our safe third country agreement? Nothing, uh, and why should people be be allowed to enter the United States or enter Canada from the United States uh, as as migrants and refugee claimants? They shouldn't, unless you talk to an immigration lawyer, then, of course, you get the other side of the story. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, immigration lawyers have been very loud on this issue, but, of course, immigration lawyers stand to make profit from processing the asylum claims or appealing them of people that are coming into the country. I mean, like, that's, that's you know, an interest that's very rarely talked about, but it's, it's the fact of the matter, right? So I just, I cannot support, as I've said to you many times, any sort of insinuation that the United States or upstate New York or, you know, Minnesota is a place where people are fleeing persecution from. And again, you don't have to take my word for it. Justin Trudeau himself has stood up in the House of Commons and said, per the analysis done by Canadian public servants on the quantitative analysis of the criteria in the Safe Third Country Agreement that we look at to determine whether or not a country is safe, the United States is, to no surprise to anyone, still safe for people to, uh, to, to make claims in. And uh, I think that that's evidenced by the fact there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people around the world, 
who would desperately love to live in the United States of America. Michelle, Winnipeg police, uh, if I have this correctly, and I read the story a couple of days ago, are warning of gangs approaching migrants new to Canada. Do we know anything about criminal attachments of migrants entering this country? Well, certainly we know that the CBSA, is, uh, the Canadian Border Services Agency, is doing its best to screen people when they um, are entering Canada, even those uh, illegally entering the country at Roxham Road. Uh, that said, uh, you know, I've definitely been pushing the government for answers on how many people have been entering ca- Canada with criminal background and then what happens to them from there. Um, you know, what I've been worried about is that because we've seen such an increase of people in such a you know, short period of time illegally entering Canada, is that the RCMP and the CBSA, that their resources would be strained. Uh, certainly we've heard this from the uh, president of the CBSA union, that they feel that, um, you know, CBSA officials are very much under strain right now processing this many people. And, you know, the data I'm trying to get really is whether or not uh, this has been impacting the amount of time that agents are spending on the screening process. So certainly this is something that is on my radar. Um, it's something that we've been concerned about and that we're going to continue to press the government both for data on because they, if, if, if they know that we're watching them and, and pushing them on it, we're hoping that they uh, won't be allowing any corners to be cut. But certainly a big kudos to uh, people who are working within the CBSA who have been doing so under uh, very, very difficult circumstances over the last 18 months. Okay, now we've been hearing that migrants are acting as anchor relatives to get their families um, into Canada from other parts of the world. Is that happening, and how does that work? How does someone with zero official status in Canada who is being investigated for um, asylum claim how does someone with zero official status in Canada act as an anchor for others? This is a great question. So indulge me. So if you're coming to Canada, uh, let's say you've been in a United Nations refugee camp and you're being sponsored to Canada through one of our like refugee sponsorship programs, be it government-assisted or privately sponsored, uh, you would have had your refugee claim validated by the United Nations. You never would have been referred to Canada if they hadn't determined that you had a valid asylum claim. So people coming to Canada that way basically automatically have permanent residence status when they come to Canada, and they have a program that they can sponsor people into Canada through called the One-Year Window of Opportunity Program. Now, this is important because the backlog on that is so big that people who are trying to bring their relatives through that program who have permanent residence status, um, if the wait time is 30 months. Now, what you're talking about is the issue at Roxham Road, the illegal illegal border crossing crisis. So somebody who's entering illegally today, they have, as you said on the front end of our interview, they, they have a pending asylum claim. They don't have refugee status yet. We know that it's going to take a very long period of time for them to have those refugee claims looked at because the backlog is so great in the system because hashtag welcome to Canada saw over 30,000 people use this. So even though they don't have any sort of status in Canada in terms of refugee status, there's a loophole within this loophole in the agreement that says that the safe third country agreement doesn't apply to people that are in Canada, even if their refugee claims are pending. And I think that when the agreement was drafted, no one foresaw, you know, five to 11 year wait times for processing on refugees, right? 
and our refugee claims. And now that that's the reality and that that class of family is so broad, the CBSA have actually flagged this as an issue for coming months, which is very concerning to us. Well, it should be. And, you know, when we talk about time periods, five to 11 years, how many how many more federal governments are going to be governing this country within an 11-year period? I mean, next October 21st is the next federal election, and I'm hoping there's going to be a government change. Um, but it's quite possible there would be two, three prime ministers in that time period. Well, the, the reality is is that what we're seeing today, like the, the fact that there have been 30,000 people come in and, you know, the Liberals, Trudeau has done nothing except sort of make the system permanent for illegal crossings. Uh, the reality is there's a huge backlog. So any future government is going to have to think about innovative ways to clear that backlog very quickly. But what I've been stressing, more importantly, at the present time, is we have to stop the demand on the system for people that have already reached safe spaces like the U.S. Yeah, exactly. So this is why we've been pushing the uh, to exactly. close the loophole in the Safe Third Country Agreement. Exactly. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, have a great long weekend. You've deserved it. Yeah, I'm, uh, I wish that you would have had me on for your firearms owner segment, boy. That's pretty cool. Well, we can, we can call you back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go get some groceries. Have a good afternoon. Okay. Bye. All right, Michelle. Thanks yeah. for the time. Bye. Patrick Dunleavy is uh, my guest. He's the former Deputy Inspector General of New York State's Department of Correctional Services. He's the author of the book, The Fertile Soil of Jihad, Terrorism's Prison Connection. He's a speaker for the, or has been for the FBI, the CIA, Scotland Yard, uh, Canadian Intelligence Services, Toronto Police. And he is also uh, teaching a course on terrorism to uh, the United States Military Special Operations School. Mr. Dunleavy, thank you very much for taking the time. My pleasure, Roy. Thank you for having me. ISIS terrorists, killers, returning to their home countries as ISIS is pushed out of Syria and Iraq. Uh, In Canada, our prime minister has laid out the welcome mat for these terrorists, saying they will contribute in an extraordinary manner to Canada. In other countries, these terrorists are not so welcome. And you write, the home countries should be preparing for attacks by the returning ISIS terrorists, and according to a study, within a year of their return, or perhaps sooner. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, there was a, a study done by a ter- on terrorism and political violence, um, Taylor Francis, that looked at uh, returning foreign fighters over a period of 30 years, and they were looking specifically to see what was the lag time between when a foreign fighter, a jihadist, returned to his home country and when he attempted to uh, have an attack in his, in his own hometown. And they found that the time period could be a year, but it could be as little as just a few months that a returning fighter would then attempt a, a terrorist attack in his hometown. So I would think that with that short a time frame, that authorities in all the Western democracies, Canada and the United States and the European Union, would begin to look at this a little bit more uh, seriously than to just say we're going to welcome foreign fighters back in our country with uh, no consequences. Do you get the feeling that uh, some of the Western leaders, and I use the word leaders very reluctantly, but uh, do do you get the feeling that some of them are really just hoping for the best? They really don't know what to do 
when a terrible attack happens, they mouth words that really don't mean much. Do you? Yeah, do you get the... I, I think I think in some sense they are hoping for the best, but I don't think that the reason for that is because they don't know what to do. I think the reason is that they're not willing to know, to do what they need to do, which is which is that you have to ratchet up security on individuals that are coming back if they have provided some sort of uh, assistance to a terrorist organization there has to be some sort of uh, detention some sort of incarceration and the study goes on to say that they have to have some sort of intervention immediately with a, a de-radicalization program a program that forces the individual to look at uh, why did this person become radicalized and what is what is the the overwhelming uh, ideology that is pushing them towards violence? We in this country, we in this country now have an individual who openly says that he was a, a an assassin for ISIS, that he committed murders, and he's made these statements to New York Times bloggers. He also states openly that he lives in Toronto. There. Nobody troubles him. Nobody causes him any distress as far as authorities are concerned. And he said as well that he hasn't told the police everything because there's no reason for them to know. And nothing's being done about this individual from what we understand anyway as far as the rest of us are concerned. There's no word that he's going to be detained. There's no word that uh, anything uh, is being done to keep him under control. Um, And again, Mr. Trudeau has said that he expects that returning ISIS terrorists would contribute extraordinarily to the well-being of this country by de-radicalizing individuals, perhaps. Well, I don't think they're the ideal candidates, do you? No, they're going, they're going to contribute to your country, but I think what they're going to contribute is a, is, is a negative uh, factor. Uh, even if they do not commit an attack themselves, they will, just by their stature, attract and recruit other individuals. This individual that you're speaking about comes back, claims to have uh, committed all these uh, killings, and is glorified and becomes like a rock star. And individuals will flock to him to listen to the message. So instead, then, of, instead of de-radicalizing, he's, in, he's continuing to radicalize. Yeah, under yeah, that scenario. That's, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, and, the, and this is interesting, is that uh, an imam in the European Union, where they were talking about de-radicalization, country, you know, de-radicalization programs and how to change an ideology, and most of the Western democracies do not want to uh, impede or interfere in someone's religious beliefs, but an imam in Brussels said, what you're doing is you're quarantining a virus, but you're not really trying to find some sort of cure for it. That there has to be some sort of mm-hmm. experts in ideology that will address with these individuals. Because by and large, most of the terrorist acts that have been carried out in the last uh, 20 years have been from individuals who had some sort of radical Islamic ideology where they thought that killing innocent men, women, and children would please their God. And unless we address that ideology, we're just going to be playing uh, what was known, the old game that was known as whack-a-mole. You knock down one mole, the next one comes up. Of course, yeah. 
Let me uh, let me look at your column for a moment. Uh, are prisons conveyor belts to jihad? Investigativeproject.org, and then your book, The Fertile Soil of Jihad, um, which has to do with uh, with, with prison uh, life. Now, when individuals, when jihadists are imprisoned for their criminal acts, they're placed into largely general population situations from what I understand in North America, maybe not so much in, in, in European countries where they have actual special facilities set aside for these individuals. I don't know how well they're working, but they, they do have them. Uh, can you, and you know the prison reality, the prison world extremely well, how do they find fertile ground for their message of destruction of Western values inside Western prisons? What goes on? Well, the, way, the, way, the way they find the fertile soil, first of all, and, and this is based on a study that was done by uh, Western intelligence services as far back as uh, 14 or 15 years ago that looked at what type of individual would be most susceptible to this radical ideology. And they found that, by and large, it was the individuals who had a pre predisposition for violence and had a... Uh, feeling that they were somehow wronged by authority. Now, where are you going to find the vast majority of individuals with those type of feelings? You're going to find them in prison. And in prison, by and large, they say there's no atheists in foxholes and prison cells. Individuals begin to look for some sort of redemptive uh, quality, some sort of uh, philosophy that will bring them to feel that they have some sort of moral redemption. And the law comes in uh, a jihadist in prison and tells him you can belong to a family, you can have a purpose in God if you join us, and that all these other individuals who have wronged you, they're just, that's just because they are infidels. And as the person gets brought along, they say, yes, now I have a family that I belong to, now I have an outlet for my violence, and I have some sort of moral redemption. And that's how it happens in prison. So, Mr. Dunleavy, if you have these individuals who are in prison, eventually they come out. And if they've been able to network in prison, then they will use those networks when they get out, I would assume. So, as I said, over the next two years, and I got this from, from your column, over the next two years, hundreds of inmates, radicalized followers of Islamic State, are going to be released from prison. Is there uh, not every possibility they will form an international terror network within Western nations, which are governed by those timid politicians you and I talked about, and as I said earlier, protected by somewhat defanged law enforcement and anti-terror organizations? Well, if recent history is going to be any guide, then the answer to that question is yes. Uh, very few people are aware of the fact that ISIS, the command and control uh, the actual leadership of ISIS was formed while they were in prison in Afghanistan, in uh, Camp Buka. Um, I believe, I think it was in Iraq, um, where they were actually able to meet and to pass on communication with each other. And then when they went out later on, they were able to form and to communicate. And that's the same thing that will happen when individuals who are released from prison within the next couple of years who have been... Um, arrested for terrorist-related crimes have probably continued to grow in their fervency for this radical ideology uh, that they will inform 
uh, they will coalesce, they will form some sort of organization that will be a detriment to our societies. How are these special prisons, prison units for terrorists working out? Uh, the UK and France have these special units where they only put in jihadis. Um, right. Is that proving it to be a success or is that just actually, more of a problem? Actually, yeah, actually, it's not working. Uh, France has already admitted that their de radicalization program uh, with respect to trying to isolate individuals is not is not totally isolating them. There is always a way in prison, and just it's just the prison culture, there is always a way in prison to communicate with someone. Uh, solitary confinement is not actually solitary. There's always some interaction. The U.K. Um, should have known this because they tried to do the same thing when they uh, prosecuted a lot of the IRA terrorist case back in the 70s, and they put them all in a prison called the Maze. And what they found is that putting all of the guys or individuals with a radical ideology in one place only galvanized their beliefs. They were just feeding off each other. So there has to be more than just a solitary single cell for an inmate. There has to be some sort of program that monitors all their communication, written visitors' phones, as well as looking at how they're influencing other inmates. Well, I can already hear I can already hear the defense lawyers screaming that their constitutional rights are being violated. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of funny when you talk about uh, the rights. Uh, how many uh, scholars, legal scholars, develop in prison? Uh, we, we're noticing now that a lot of the terrorists that are already in prison are filing, following, filing lawsuits against the very governments that they try to overthrow. And using as a as a foundation for their lawsuits the very rights that they uh, spit in the face of. For instance, Zacharias Mosawi, one of the 9/11 conspirators, called the 20th hijacker. He's now suing because he wants a a large wall clock outside of his cell so he can know what time he should pray. Well, he's serving six life sentences. There isn't a clock in the world that's big enough to calculate that time. Uh, these type of frivolous lawsuits, these type of uh, using uh, the rights of freedom that we have in our democracies is actually spitting in the face of the people uh, that they try to kill. When you talk about lawsuits for constitutional rights having been yeah. violated, whether it's by imagination or whether somehow they are judged to be appropriate, we have uh, Omar Khadr in this country who sued Canada for $20 million dollars arguing his rights had been compromised, and our prime minister preemptively cut him a check for $10.5 million, arguing if he didn't do that, then uh, Cotter would probably get 30, 40, 50 million from a court eventually. I have no idea where Mr. Trudeau got that number from, but that, that's been very disturbing to people across this country, that we have a prime minister who would actually cut a check for $10.5 million, again, preemptively, for a terrorist. We have about 30 seconds for your answer, your thoughts, Mr. Dunleavy. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, there's an exact case that your prime minister should have paid attention to. There was an individual by the name of Ronald Felder, who was a uh, U.K. citizen, was released from Guantanamo. He was given a settlement of one and a half million pounds. What he did is he took that money and he went back to the Middle East. He went back to Afghanistan and became a suicide bomber. So I would think Mr. Trudeau just spent $10 million 
on an individual who in all likelihood may help commit another terrorist act, if not himself, someone he influences. That's what you'll get for your $10 million settlement. Appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, Mr. Dunleavy. All the best to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Patrick Dunleavy, his book is The Fertile Soil of Jihad, Terrorism's Prison Connection. One thing that uh, that, that really struck me over the last days, and really the last two weeks as the conversation and the talk about gun ownership in Canada has become front and center, is that nobody, or virtually nobody, seems to be interested in the point of view of the legal gun owner. The person who has firearms, has a firearm or firearms, the person who's jumped through the requisite bureaucratic hoops, the person who's provided all of the personal information that they require before you can have a rifle or a shotgun in Canada, the person who's essentially had to prove that they are what they are, and that is an honest, law-abiding citizen. But the other side of the equation, the criminal element, they're not filling out forms. They're not providing information of their last two years in business. They're not letting government know whether they've gone bankrupt over the last two years or whether they've had a breakdown of a personal relationship over the last two years. They're not providing an 800 toll-free number to the person whose relationship they broke down or they, you know, the mutual relationship broke down so that person can complain about the criminal having the gun and really what I'm doing is simply pointing out what the law-abiding citizen has to deal with. So, we'll prepare ourselves for Mr. Trudeau traveling around the world and coming back with... I don't know what he'll come back with, but he'll come back with something, and it'll have to do with gun ownership. So, what is sensible gun ownership in this country? What would Canada's legal gun owners describe as sensible gun ownership? I'm going to be asking you, and if you have an opinion you want to share it, it's 800-263-2428, and the lines are open already for you. We won't put you on the air with our guests. But if you want to get ready to share with us what your thoughts are about legal gun ownership, what the law should look like, and whether you fear losing your firearm to legislation yet to be introduced by the federal government, supplemented by various provincial entities, 800-263-2428 is the number to call. If you're somebody who believes that really no one should have a firearm, then you're more than welcome to share that thought with us at 800-263-2428. Mr. Tory, the Toronto mayor, was asking metaphorically, I think, why would anybody in Toronto want to own a gun anyway? So we're going to play back what John Tory said a little later in the hour, but we want to give gun owners an opportunity to share their thoughts at 800-263-2428. Let me introduce my guests to you first. Um, Tony Bernardo is the executive director of the Canadian Shooting Sports Association, CSSA, and CELA. Hi, Tony. Good to have you back with us. Hi, Roy. Nice to be here. And Scott Newark, who... uh, Is there a week that you've missed on this show recently? (laughs) Not recently. Not recently. Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. He has a tremendous uh, history of active involvement with public safety in Canada. Um, public safety expert for the federal and provincial governments of Ontario post 9-11. And uh, was a senior policy advisor to a former public safety minister. Tony, 
what's what in what in, from your perspective is the objective of the current federal government as far as legal ownership of firearms in this country is concerned? What are they trying to accomplish? I think they're trying to deflect attention away from the real issues that were surrounding the shooting on the Danforth. There's a whole lot of questions that aren't answered. There's a whole lot of things the police aren't saying. And I think that this is a deflection to try to move attention away from that. And one of the to- some of the talking points have been that, uh, in fact, there was a, I shouldn't say in fact, one of the talking points has been, and there's no corroboration of it that we're aware of, it's just been sort of rumored, that there was a potential terrorism situation going on at the same time. Scott, uh, what do you see? And I know one of your concerns has been, and you've talked about it on this show, has been the person who has 20 guns instead of one. Yeah, the, uh, I, I actually agree with uh, Tony. The, um, um, the attention that this has gotten in the last couple of weeks after the Danforth shooting, I think, has reached the point of absurdity when you know, p- uh, you've got public officials saying that uh, the issue involving gun violence... Uh, is something that uh, can be dealt with by some regulatory change or that people should not lawfully be entitled to uh, um, have the rights that they currently have in relation to gun ownership if they live in a city. I mean, the issue here is about criminal uh, conduct that involves uh, or is with people who are actually using guns, and that is not something that's going to be addressed by, uh, uh, in, in a generic sense, by tweaking some regulations. You want to take a look if there is actual evidence about uh, how people are acquiring guns illegally, if, they're, if they, in fact they are getting them from people who have the guns, but it's a completely different issue. And whether it's being put forward out of ignorance or whether, as Tony says, it's sort of as a distraction, it is, in fact, I think, a complete uh, misdescription of the real phenomena, which is how we deal with uh, uh, guns and gangs. Okay, so guns and gangs. Let me just set that aside for half a second. Tony, do you not believe, so if I understand correctly, you don't believe that the federal government is in any way interested in uh, in annoying gun-owning voters a year before an election by starting to talk about, well, maybe we should just make all guns illegal. Well, politically, Roy, I mean, that's even pretty stupid for our current government. Even for that. Yeah, even for them. You don't go and you take 2.1 million Canadians who haven't done anything wrong today and infuriate them by by basically taking their property that they've legally acquired and legally used. You don't do that on the eve of an election. I mean, that's political suicide. And yet John Tory wondered out loud why anyone in Toronto would want to own a gun. Well, you know, you, you, you can forgive Mr. Tory's ignorance, at least to a degree, because he really doesn't understand what our community does, and it appears that he, he doesn't wish to understand it either. But remember, he has a real crisis on his hands. He's got gang crime significantly out of control in Toronto. And then there's this incident on the Danforth, which to anybody taking more than a cursory look at it screams terrorism. And they just recently had a lockdown at the Rogers Center in a Canada's Wonderland over a, a threatened terrorist incident that they took seriously. Mm-hmm. He's got to do whatever he can right now to take the heat off him. And if he can, he can take the heat and go throw it over on the feds, 
then that's probably a good political move for Mr. Tory, but it certainly is disingenuous. Scott, you mentioned gangs, uh, and uh, Tony mentioned gangs, and gangs and guns. So go ahead with that. Well, I think the, uh, I mean, that is the obvious phenomenon that's taking place, mostly in Toronto, but it's also in other uh, major cities uh, across Canada. And it is entirely appropriate to ask yourself the question, uh, these uh, guns that are being used in these crimes, number one, uh, were they uh, being used by people who lawfully owned them? The answer, in my opinion, in 99% of the cases is no. And secondly, how did they get the guns? Okay, that's something that definitely deserves some analysis. And I personally, um, I think it is, uh, uh, the, the current firearms uh, system, I think, could bear some uh, internal scrutiny. Uh, and there's been some claims made that have not even been statistically accurate in the sense of this great increase in the amount of uh, guns that are being used in crimes that are uh, uh, essentially have come from domestic owners. I think we need to do, and it, it turns out that the numbers that are being quoted are not statistically accurate. But I think that's the kind of thing, a substantive kind of analysis that we want to take a look at to see you know, where these guns are actually coming from and are there things we could legitimately do that would reduce the ability of these people to acquire the guns. Mm-hmm. But that's an entirely different question mm-hmm. uh, than uh, you know, coming out and saying, well, if you live within Toronto, you shouldn't be allowed to have a gun. No, I just go to Mississauga and buy one there, I guess. Now, yeah. Uh, there was a there, there was a story in iPolitics uh, column that got a lot of attention. Handgun ownership soared after long gun registry ended. Gun crime followed. Boy, there was a tremendous response to that. People saying that's just absolutely disingenuous and it's it's just wrong, wrong, wrong. And my colleague at AM six forty in Toronto, Mid Morning Show host Matt Gurney, wrote a terrific piece. A fair gun control debate requires accurate firearm facts, and you can find that at. Uh, at uh, globalnews.ca, just go to Matt Gurney's page. Um, but that's that's uh, that particular column. I don't think anybody involved uh, with firearms, whether they own a firearm or just interested in firearms, why was that published at this particular time? Just make gun owners look irresponsible and dangerous. It was absolutely appalling. It's based upon this number that keeps being floated around that 50% of the crime guns out there are being taken from Canadian gun owners and stores and things like that, and they wind up on the street in the hands of gangs. Well, the fact is, Roy, that uh, there's two elements at play here. First of all, the document that this is taken from says 50% of the guns successfully traced Well, they only successfully traced 28% of them. So what we're really talking about here is 14%, not 50%, only 14%. The other thing, too, is that this has been somewhat of a victim of the success of the CBSA, Canada Border Services, who in the last few years have really upped their game in terms of interdiction of crime guns coming across the, the border. And at the Guns and Kings Summit, uh, I heard CBSA talking about the fact that they have almost doubled the amount of guns they're seizing. So what's happening here is instead of, for example, 750 guns coming into the country, 250 of which are 
uh, stolen in Canada and the other 500 are coming in from the U.S., they've half that number. Now 250 come in from the U.S. and the same 250 being stolen in Canada, but it's gone from being 25% of the guns to being 50% of the guns because they're only playing, playing with this number in percentages. You notice they virtually never give you the actual number of the guns. That's right. That's right. Right. It's, it's, it's percentages. Scott, what are your thoughts Always. on that? Well, uh, just a couple of points. Uh, number one, um, uh, if there are uh, guns that are being stolen by criminals that are lawfully owned guns that are being stolen by criminals, I'd like to uh, delve into that a little bit more. Um, how do the bad guys know where to go and get the guns? That's, do we have problems with the integrity of the database? Are there problems, Again. for example, uh, with respect to um, uh, uh, gu- gun vendors? I don't know the answers to those questions, but those are questions that need to be asked, irrespective of the numbers. And Tony, my understanding is that Tony's analysis is correct as well, too, that the original number that was cited as 50% is a, a misstatement. That's what I was referring to. The other thing I would just caution about the CBSA uh, I think, uh, again, uh, Tony is right about CBSA having done a, made significant improvements in uh, firearm detection interdiction at designated ports of entry. But one of the places where they haven't is between ports of entry. And I'll tell you something, when the bad guys realize that uh, their normal smuggling route is being blocked, they go somewhere else. And we do not have sufficient uh, between port of entry mobile interdiction based on uh, t- uh, surveillance technology, and there is a, uh, a sig- I think there is a significant increase uh, in that as an area of um, smuggling. So there's a lot of issues that need to be looked at here, and hopefully we'll move to that so we can try to get some actual public safety improvement as opposed to this, I think, um, uh, less than informed philosophical debate. Now, Tony, what a go- I'm going to go to gun owners in the next half hour. We'll hear what they have to say across Canada, what they want. But just from the perspective and the, and the overview of CSSA and CELA, what do gun owners want? Honestly, they just want to be left alone. You know, they, they've been jumping through hoops. The government has set up all these tests, and we meet all the criteria for these tests. We obey all the laws, and it's an ever-changing sea of regulation. It seems that every three or four months, the RCMP changes their mind on something, and you've got all these new rules that you have to follow or be a criminal. And we do that. You know, we, we jump through all the hoops. We do everything the government requires of us, and it's never enough. No, it never is. Gentlemen, thank you so much for the time. Scotty, I won't ask you what you shot on, on the golf course, so I'll just assume it was... Yeah, uh, let me just check the scorecard. Uh, 35 was on the uh, the 9. Oh, no, wait, sorry, 48. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Scott. Well done. Good talking to you again, man. Well, those numbers are confusing, aren't they? Huh? Yeah. So confusing. <laughs> Scott, thank you. Tony, thank you so much. Bye-bye, guys. Thank you, Roy. I am looking forward to speaking once again with uh, Vaden Earl, who's a great guy. He's Canadian. He's uh, he's a good person, and he adopted a young lady who was essentially orphaned by the earthquake in Haiti. Now her mom and uh, and Whitlene, she's the twelve year old, were able to make their way to the Dominican Republic, and that's where Vaden uh, met Whitlene and her mom. As they were trying to eke out a living, uh, finding things that could be turned into cash at um, various disposal sites, 
people just you know get rid of things. And uh, and then her mom died, and over a period of time, Baden Earl uh, adopted Whitlene, and now, of course, he wants her in Canada. She's the daughter, adopted daughter, of a Canadian, which makes her, I would think, Canadian. And for some reason, understood only to Mr. Husson, the immigration minister for Canada, he's refused to sign or isn't signing or hasn't signed or won't sign the papers that allow Whitlene to come to this country. Uh, Vaden also told us that the prime minister met him face-to-face and promised him more than once, face-to-face, that he would get engaged in the issue and do what he could to get Whitlene into Canada. Well, the only thing they have to do is sign a piece of paper. That's all. That either Justin Trudeau or um, the immigration minister have to do. That's, that's, That's all they have to do. Sign a piece of paper, and they get into Canada. So let me say uh, hello once again to Vaden Earl. How are you, Vaden? I'm all right, Roy. How are you doing? Great. Uh, good to have you back with us. It's good to be here. I'm kind of stranded en route to Dominican Republic, but I'm glad we can make this work. Yeah, I understood that uh, somebody threw a monkey wrench into the airplane, did they? Uh, yeah, something like that. We're at tornado warnings, so I'm... Oh. I'm in Boston right now, just kind of waiting it out. Yeah, better to stay on the ground. Don't get into those I things. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Safety over uh, over what am I doing here? Yeah. Uh, also yeah. with us is uh, is your daughter, Widlene. Hi, Widlene. Hi. How are you? Good, and you? I'm just doing great. Whereabouts are you now? Are you in the Dominican Republic? Yep. I am at my sister's house right now. Okay. And how badly do you want to come to Canada? Really bad. Yeah. Have you uh, have have you have you been to Canada yet with your with your family? No. Nope. You have or you haven't? No, I haven't. Not yet. Oh my. And uh Vaden, where do we where do we stand now as far as the uh the case itself is concerned? We're in a holding pattern. I mean, they've had a a TRP application that was submitted at Christmas time and and here we are into August and we can't get Hussein to give us a no, which of course we would appeal in federal court and win. We can't get them to give us a yes, which would be a win in and of itself. They just dragged their heels, and we can't we can't do anything if we don't get an answer. All right, let me bring into the conversation Dean Allison, who's a conservative member of Parliament in Southern Ontario. I've known Dean for for many years. Uh, Dean, good to talk to you again after all the years it's been. And why is this why is this case not very simply? being handled properly by the immigration minister or the prime minister, just sign the paper and let this young lady move to Canada and be with her Canadian family. Well, first of all, Roy, great to, great to hear your voice and uh, good to chat with you after, after a few years. You know, I, I think really it's a, just a case of political will, right? You know, we see the thousands and thousands of illegal uh, refugees crossing the borders every day and being given uh, food and shelter and all these other kinds of things, because as, as Canadians, we are very generous people. But in this particular case, because uh, Elaine is uh, held up with red tape and because of earthquakes and, and a whole bunch of unforeseen circumstances, you know, this uh, government has said, you know, we are not prepared until we get a certain piece of paper or a certain documentation, which quite frankly does not exist. And so what we need the minister and the prime minister to do is to show some compassion and to uh, to go out and have some political will and uh, make this happen. This isn't uh, this isn't a, a, a situation where you're 
creating political asylum for uh, an ousted president of a of another country. This is a 12-year-old child who's been adopted by a Canadian family, a good family who wanted to come to this country. So why is this not just cut and dried? Can the minister not, you know, Dean, I get the political will side of things, but isn't there just common sense? Isn't there just the the, the fact that, that, you know, if I were the, if I were Mr. Huston and sitting at his desk, I'd be saying, where's that ministerial permit that I need to sign? Get it to me right now. Well, I think that's just it. I think that's been the case all along, and that's why there's been a number of us that have said, hey, we, we're not sure why you're not proceeding. We we understand that uh, there are things that you believe that you require, and we understand that there's process and due, due process and all that stuff. But at this, this stage of the game, this is something that's been going on for years and years. And quite frankly, uh, Roy, you just said it best, why not just sign, why not just sign the piece of paper and, and make it happen? It's just stupid. Really, it is. It's hard. It's hurting a family. It's 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 frustrating for for the family. It's it's terrible to hear this young lady, and she sounds like such a charmer that she wants to come to Canada. She's the, you know, she wants to be with her Canadian family. Why can these people not just understand that it's the right thing to do? Woodlean, if you had an opportunity to talk to the Prime Minister of Canada, what would you say to him? Well, I would tell him like. I would ask him why would he lie in front of the people that he would help us and that he would get Canada, for me to get to Canada and that that if he was in our situation, what would he do? Well, exactly. What would he do? And Vaden, when, uh, when, when Woodlene talks about the prime minister having made commitments, he made commitments to you directly, did he not? Face to face right there in Hamilton. He shook my hand at the Peach Festival and said, as long as you guys have submitted the proper TRP application, I'm going to make sure it gets done. And that was August 12th of 2017. You know, Dean, I have to, I have to say this. Why would he even talk about a TRP application? He's the Prime Minister of Canada. He can talk to you. You explained the situation to us very clearly last time you were on the air with us. You talked about the paperwork that need to be, needed to be handled, needed to be taken care of. Because of Whitley's circumstances, and she'd been moved from Haiti to the Dominican Republic and back to Haiti, and uh, so and, and paperwork got lost because of the, the earthquake and the resultant confusion. But the fact is, you are the adoptive father, are you not? Mm-hmm. You've got yeah, the... And the, the, they're, they're getting hung up in the fact that now that she's stateless because Dominican or Haiti won't recognize her, they... they Somehow they feel like that's they're out to not take some responsibility, but it's 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 just an asinine sort of a, a an argument because it's still a human rights issue and they, it, it drives me crazy when they turn Wait. a human rights issue into a political issue. Yeah, well, Dean, we're 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 now looking at a border that is being crossed with impunity every day, and uh, we're hearing our new minister for border security and some weird secondary responsibility to reduce organized crime. I have no idea what reduction of organized crime will look like. It just, just is, I can't put it together. But we have, we have this new minister, and we have the border being crossed every day with impunity. We have the government defending the border crossers. We have lawyers defending the border crossers. And we have, now we're caught up, though, in this minutiae of a 12-year-old child who's an adopted child of a Canadian family. And the government of Canada says, well, 
we don't have the requisite paperwork. This is just stupid, really, and it's it's harmful and it's and it's hurtful to hear this. Well, and I think if you if you look, and I know Vade and I have talked many times about this. You know, uh, they'll ask they'll ask him for a new set of paperwork. You'll provide what is required, and then all of a sudden it'll it'll change in terms of well, we're, no, we need something different, and you go back and forth. I mean, I, I can't even begin to describe how frustrated they must be, given the fact that if this is not something he's been working on for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. He's been working on this for years. And once again, it's not just like he's got the support of one or two people. He's got the support of thousands of Canadians. And, and, quite a f- and quite a few members of Parliament. Absolutely. Yep. So, yeah. so let me let me just let me just ask you this. Then we'll take a break, and we'll come back. We'll talk more with Vaden, with we'll, we'll, with with Lean, and with, with Dean. I know that I know the I know how the world works. I have a pretty good idea. I've been around long enough, and I I know how it works. In a situation like this, it would be not uncommon for a group of MPs um, to take on this cause and meet together quietly away from the lights work out a, something, a mutually agreeable solution to the problem, take the, the, the mutually agreeable solution to the appropriate person who has the right to sign the paper. In this case, it would be Mr. Husson or, you know, the baby Jesus himself, um, and, and, and just sign the paper and let this little girl come to Canada. Well, is that happening at all? Oh, absolutely. That's something that... Uh... I, you know, maybe could talk to this a little bit more, but certainly there's been a lot of talk behind the scenes. I know that uh, I've talked to liberal counterparts. I know that Maiden's talked to them on many occasions. As a matter of fact, he's talked to them, and I've gone to talk to them. And then somewhere in between the conversations that Maiden uh, had and probably them talking to the minister or the PMO or who knows what, their stories and their support has changed. And I, I, I leave that to Maiden to, to probably... Okay. Explain a little bit better, but I mean, there's definitely been all kinds of people working behind the scenes trying to do this quietly and, and make this happen. Whitley, how did you? Uh, why did you learn to speak English so well? Um, two parents, my dad and my mom. Really? Because you, you and you have such a great Canadian accent. Oh, thank you. Well, I have to get. Yeah. How does it feel, Vaden, to listen to your daughter talk about wanting to come to, and you're on the phone on the radio? Listening to her and understanding the frustration that that continues to sift through your whole life, and tell us, please, what is this? Dean says you you can share with us what the situation is. So please do that again. Remind us of what it is all about. Well, like as you summed up in the beginning, Lean came into our lives almost ten years ago now, and through a terrible situation where her mother had passed away, and we did everything with the help of the then conservative government. We did everything by the book to get her into Canada through international adoption and immigration. And because the, the legislation changed in Dominican Republic after the earthquake, a lot, a lot of things changed, but new legislation has been stripping anyone born in Dominican Republic. If they had Haitian descent, they're stripped of their citizenship. So Woodleen, although her mother was Haitian, her grandmother was Haitian, uh, she was born in Dominican Republic. And according to the old law, deserves Dominican citizenship, or at least some citizenship. And the new legislation 2014 has stripped them of that right to citizenship, and not just from that date forward, but all the way back to 1929. So the Dominican Republic has effectively created 
750,000 stateless people when they've taken away their citizenship. And and that's what leaves us with the case we've got here now with Ludmine. She's She can't be considered Dominican. Dominican Republic will not recognize her. Haiti will not recognize her because she was born outside Haiti. So she's stuck in no man's land. It's not actually legal for her to be in either country. And it's it makes me proud to hear her articulate the way she is to you right now, because I hear this every day. We talk about this every day in our family. And, uh, you know, she's she's a kid that's been living in this, this world where there's turmoil around her, and she doesn't know where she belongs. But for her to step up um, and, and speak so clearly to you what, what it means to her, it's a pretty big step. And she might she might actually let you know that she had a birthday last week, and she is now 13. Oh, happy birthday, belatedly, 13. i got to be careful. I'm... Gonna be in trouble if I say oh, you're thank 12. You. Happy birthday! We'd sing it. We'd sing it. We'd sing it to you, but you don't want to hear that. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, what I still don't get. I understand the technicality of it, but clearly, you explained this to the Prime Minister of Canada, Mr. Trudeau. You, he knows the situation. You met him face to face. Yeah. You promised to take care of it if you had whatever form it is. Now he knows that that paperwork's not available. Is the man so completely bereft of common sense? that he can't say, okay, so that form doesn't exist. I'm the Prime Minister of Canada. Create a form. Hey, somebody in the PMO, write me write out a form. Here's what I want you to write. Then bring me, please, uh, a special pen, because I want to give that to this young lady, and we're, <laughs> we're going to have her in, in Canada. Dean, it's, 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 it should be so simple. Absolutely. As I said before, it's, it's a question of political will. It's a question of the prime minister, or the the minister of immigration, or is it, or is it, or Dean, is it a question of humanity? Well, that's part of it as well. I mean, you look at there's always extenuating circumstances, and you and you you, you talked about it earlier in the show. You talk about people illegally, or as the liberals like to say, irregularly crossing our border. And you know, at the end of the day, we show compassion to thousands and thousands of people every year. So. Why would we not look at something like this and show the same kind of compassion? And the reality, I, I, the, re, the reality of Aiden is it's not going to change. She's your daughter. The yeah. reality is the paperwork's not going to be available because of what has happened. And the reality is the Dominican Republic changed the law. They're not going to change it back so that Whitlene can satisfy Mr. Trudeau's requirement for a certain piece of paper. Uh, it, it's, it's going to stay the way it is. <laughs> so sign the paper, let her come to Canada, and let's uh, all get on with our lives and allow Widleen to grow and prosper in Canada. By the way, everybody, go to bringwidleenhome.com. That's W-I-D-L-E-N-E, W-I-D-L-E-N-E, bringwidleenhome.com, and get involved. Vaden, we're, go we're going to stay, uh, stay with you on this. Uh, Dean, thank you for joining us. Widleen, I hope to see you in Canada very soon. Me too. Okay. Take care. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Roy. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us, and remember to sign up for the podcast of The Roy Green Show on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and, of course, RoyGreenShow.com. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.